podcast public service announcement. You're about to hear an episode in the middle of a multi-part show arc. If you haven't heard the previous episodes, we suggest you skip back to part one of this topic in the feed and listen in order. All right, Paranoid Strain Orchestra, hit it. There's no question that, as important as the U.S. is for the past century plus, England, and more importantly Great Britain's empire, would be the engine driving Freemasonry's adoption throughout the world. So it's worth understanding how this half-organized Scottish Lodge system turned into English Freemasonry. With its internationally codified rules, huge influence across diverse countries, an air of mystique and intrigue. The first concept the English Lodges added onto the ideas of the Scottish Old Charges is that of acception. That is, the embrace of members who, rather than being stonemasons by profession, were accepted as part of the group, in spite of the fact that they didn't have the underlying profession and skill set. These expanded lodges, with their looser rules, came to be known collectively as the exception, using the ACC spelling of that word. And this innovation is surprisingly important because... In England, it is only when the historical documents start mentioning accepted masons, or a secret organization known as the exception, that we can identify the immediate predecessors of today's brethren because of the strong similarities between their rituals and those practiced both by the shore lodgers and by modern craftsmen. As the exception spread, more evidence of the secrets which must never be written leaked out. It was accepted masons of England who, over time, would make the name of Freemasons their own. So what caused this loosely associated group of Scottish masons with hermeticist aspirations to spread far and wide and have influence to this day? Mostly, it boils down to the fact that the rich, cool kids of the early 18th century decided masonry was the fucking tits, man. Gentleman, intellectual fashion makes the masons' organizations begin to seem an attractive place to hang out. They have a tradition of religious tolerance, for example, at a very difficult moment for religious conflict. And so you start to get these organization lodges, not just being meeting places for working stonemasons, but places where gentlemen and stonemasons together pursue more symbolic, moral, ethical pursuits, philosophical pursuits. And with time, the gentlemen kind of take over. It takes a century and more. And Freemason really becomes a, a club. And turn it into a club they did. The key date is the 24th of June, 1717. 1717 is a very, very important date in the history of Freemasonry. In 2017, the United Grand Lodge of England, the sort of governing body of Freemasons in England, celebrated its 300th anniversary in June 2017, deriving itself from that date. And what happened on that date, or what seems to have happened, is that we got the formation of a Grand Lodge, okay? So you have a whole set of local lodges spread across England and Scotland and other parts. 
This is the first time that we hear talk of a Grand Lodge, which is a kind of authority to regulate Freemason, to decide ultimately which rituals are legitimate and which aren't, who is really a Freemason and who isn't. This happened in London in a tavern called the Goose and Gridiron, very near St. Paul's Cathedral. And it is another very significant event that is surrounded by mystery and doctored history. To expand on what interview John Dickey just said, here's book John Dickey. The famous meeting in the Goose and Gridiron was a turning point in the history of the craft, which is why it is so perplexing that we know so little about it. No material traces are left. The Goose and Gridiron and the other three pubs where the founding lodges met have long since been demolished. More curiously, the Freemasons who are normally punctilious documenters of their own activities, have no contemporary records of the meeting. As we shall see, there are reasons to suspect a cover-up. What do you mean a cover-up? Well, as interview John Dickey tells us, the recently empowered, more liberal, by 18th century standards, Whig party, who were politically ascendant at that time, decided to establish an Uber Lodge that would have authority over the conduct of other lodges. And, of course, they created this first-ever Grand Lodge in their own image, removing or minimizing the contributions of other groups. The Scots, for example, or the more conservative English Tories who have made enormous contributions to the burgeoning Masonic movement. And I think what we see then is really politically motivated takeover of what is just then becoming called Freemasonry by people close to the new Whig regime the sort of German origin Hanover dynasty who were wedded to the idea of a Protestant monarchy as opposed to the Stuarts who'd come before them who were suspiciously closely allied to Catholicism and to ideals of absolute monarchy. The Whigs really mounted a takeover of the state, of jobs in the universities, in the judiciary, all sorts of things, Whig placement, but everywhere. And the foundation of the Grand Lodge was really an attempt to take control of Freemasonry. Now, all of this Whig intrigue and cover-up is all well and good, but it wouldn't amount to a hill of beans if Freemasonry hadn't prospered as a result and continued its influence down to the present day. Or at least certainly you wouldn't be learning about them on this show. Yeah, we aren't going to spend hours investigating the Hellfire Clubs of 18th century England. Y'all had your chance to go big time back in 1719. You fucked it up. We're unimpressed. We ain't got time for your trifling, no conspiracy generating secret societies, yo. Wow, got away from ourselves a little there. Once again, he writes this crap and I say it. I have no choice in the matter. Um, sure, you could argue that I am morally culpable for his terrible jokes through tacit participation, and I may be consigned to one religion cell or another for executing the horrendous vocal impressions he demands. But he's an old friend. The kind who would actually take you seriously when you jokingly volunteer to do voiceover for his little podcast. I mean, really, what's the harm? He's a generally good dude. He's known my guy, LG Sweet, for decades. And honestly, how long can he possibly keep doing this? A long long time, it turns out. Wow, Dana. That was a lot. I think we should all give you some space to explore your feelings. But understand, people, he wrote all of that, too. And this. You think you're hearing me complain. But instead, what you're actually hearing is him trying to guess when and how the audience might assume 
that a real-life Dana Unicorn would become frustrated with one or another of his self-indulgent flights of fancy, and then writing a weird meta-soliloquy for me to read complaining about that. But all of this is still being written and inserted into the show by him. These are not my words, but his. Please don't believe his artificial reality. I admire your honesty, Dana. Thank you for helping me address these issues and really put this right. You are writing and insisting I read this. It is all your fault. You are performing for the audience. Oh, Dana, you truly are the wind beneath my wings. I am not singing that song, Jesuit. I have limits. While Dana does her vocal warm-ups, let's return to the topic of the Whig recasting of the history of Freemasons and how writing the first edition of that history gave them the long-term upper hand. Book John Dickey? By far the most important book in the history of the craft is the Constitutions of the Freemasons, containing the history charges, regulations, etc., of that most ancient and right-worshipful fraternity. First published in 1723, at the book's core are the charges of a Freemason, the rule book that makes masonry what it is. Interview, John. Any follow-up? There was a lot of subsequent doctoring of the history when the sort of Whig-dominant faction within Freemasonry in 1723 published a new rule book and a new official history of Freemasonry called the Constitutions. They eradicated the Scots from the background, I think because the Scots were a bit politically controversial. But they also needed to cover up how political their takeover had been as well. Because Freemasonry has very clear laws about not doing politics in the lodges. So there's a lot of murk and intrigue. But nonetheless, with this rule book, the Constitutions of the Freemasons, which incidentally was actually written by a Scotsman who then saw Scottish contribution to Freemasonry erased at the behest of, if you like, the English Whig Freemasons who'd commissioned the book. The book was very successful, spread Freemasonry around the world. Benjamin Franklin encountered it in London, took it to the United States, published it in the United States, and that really started the ball rolling with Freemasonry in the United States. And in London, particularly, Freemasonry caught a wave, a cultural fashion for clubs and societies for cultural life in taverns and coffee shops. It's no coincidence that the four lodges that got together to found this Grand Lodge in 1717 all carried the names of pubs. For social drinking in taverns and so on and so forth, for intellectual fashion, for networking. And Freemasonry really caught the mood in that sense. And that guaranteed its success, if you like. That really propelled it along. Among the numerous ironies that have accrued to the success of the Constitutions, one big one is the fact that it was written in large part by a red-headed Scot named James Anderson, even though the Scottish origins of the craft were edited out by the same publication. It also minimized the influence of such important public masons as the legendary Christopher Wren, architect of St. Paul's Cathedral in London, simply because, as a Tory, he was seen by the ascendant Whig faction as the enemy. I mean, think about it. What better advertisement for membership in this new society that uses the building of structures as its organizing metaphor than a member who has single-handedly designed and overseen the construction of the most prominent cathedral of its time? And yet Wren is given short shrift in the constitutions by Whigs who control the nascent Grand Lodge. 
So in other words, the brotherhood that is supposed to unify all men, regardless of race, profession, political stance, or creed, betrayed its own ideals from the very beginning? Absolutely. Though it's not alone in hypocrisy. We hardly need mention the slaveholders across the ocean, who a few decades later would pledge their very lives to the idea of all humans being created equal and the right to rule deriving from the consent of the governed. Dickey gave us some more insights into this revisionist tendency among Masons when it comes to their own history and how it has impacted the way modern brothers see themselves, as well as how society sees Masons generally. The link with the guilds is rather more complicated than the Freemasons would have us believe. It's another one of these semi-mythical histories. They love to think of themselves as the descendants of the people who built the great cathedrals and all of that sort of stuff. And there's some sort of sense of dedication and purity that they see in that work. Whereas actually the stonemasons were terrible at forming guilds. They were really bad at guilds. Other guilds were much stronger and much better candidates, if you like, for becoming something else and having a lasting historical legacy. The stonemasons, in as much as they were guilds, often included other people who had nothing to do with working in stone at all. It was this moment when the stonemasons moved closer to the court and closer to political power when they formed these actual separate organisations, secret from the guilds in Scotland. So that's a messier business as well. And it's another episode where the Freemasons portray this sort of noble lineage from the honest toil of stonemasons to their own pursuits. But it's heavily fictionalized, shall we say. He also helps us understand how the proto-Masons and early Freemasons' hunger for a richer, more varied backstory for their group led them to incorporate an ever-wider array of ideas and cultural flotsam into their self-created legend. After this sort of initial spark in Scotland, where you get these elements of Renaissance culture and the folklore of stonemasons coming together, you then see a process whereby Freemasons, although they're not yet called Freemasons uh, in Scotland, these lodges start to hoover up all sorts of different cultural elements that look like they might bring prestige and bring good raw material for Masonic rituals. And that includes, of course, the furor for a particular set of ideas of universal intellectual and spiritual brotherhood that it recently emerged from Germany. Some of the gentlemen drawn to the lodges in Scotland and England may have thought they were joining the Rosicrucian order or something like it. And even if they did not, the Rosicrucian myth helped them add more layers of symbolism to masonry. For example, the ritual of Hiram Abbas' death and resurrection is thought to derive from Rosicrucian necromancy. And the Rosicrucians are one of the earliest examples of this, where the Freemasons, if you like, start to almost deliberately confuse themselves with the Rosicrucians, when, in a sense, they've got nothing to do with them directly. There's this long, long lasting process whereby Freemasons of different strands, different branches of the Brotherhood, if you like, are looking around for interesting ensembles of symbols that they can appropriate and use. Rosicrucians are one. Ancient Egypt becomes one. Looks great. All of those pyramids and, you know, pharaohs and all of that kind of stuff. Fantastic symbolic material. Let's get them in as well. You know, the fashion in the 
late 18th, 13th, early 19th century for Egypt with the, you know, Rosetta Stone and all of that kind of stuff. Oh, yes, we've got to have some Egyptian elements. It's more false trails, historically speaking. You can really just think of the Freemasons of treating everything they find in history books or fictions or whatever as potential material for a new symbolic system. So the Brits took something over and acted like they invented it. Not the first time. See, for example, tea. But the point here is that the amalgamation of myth and reality that was promulgated in London beginning in the early 18th century became a powerful magnet for ambitious young men throughout the empire and beyond. Book John Dickey explains how. The craft caught the mood of the age. The galaxy of clubs that operated free of government harassment showed that Britain was a more open society than many on the continent. There was also a noisy press unhindered by official control. What Freemasonry did provide was training the practicalities of politics. The craft's highly formalized rituals and protocols gave men from various backgrounds a way to learn the manifold skills they needed to work in modern institutions, being discreet, making speeches, interpreting constitutional rules, advising younger brethren and judging their character. The aptitudes required by an open society could be learned within the closed space of a Masonic lodge. Just as importantly, the relatively narrow sample of men who frequented the lodges came to flatter themselves that they spoke in the name of universal values. And it spread fast. I mean, it's astonishing how quickly it spreads around the world from that point. Within, what, 15 years of the publication of the rule book, the constitutions, you've got lodges in what would become the United States. You've got lodges in Charleston and in Philadelphia. You've got lodges in the Caribbean, in India in Europe, even in the Middle East, in places like Turkey and Syria. Freemasonry spreads on the currents of trade and empire, and it's really a movement that finds its moment, finds its historical moment then, and and really never looks back. Okay, so Freemasonry spread like wildfire in the 18th century. What exactly does that mean? What was the craft? What are its definitional traits? We're going to run into a lot of references when we talk about how Masonic ritual and mythical history have inspired misunderstandings and conspiracies about the group. So it behooves us to take a moment to go over the actual mysteries and secrets guarded by this most impactful of secret societies. So imagine you're a young man. And yes, most versions of American and English Freemasonry continue to require, as they have since the beginning, that only men be considered for membership. We'll get back to the unfortunate history of Masonic attitudes towards other gender identities a bit later. You're a decent bloke, and some friend or another recommends you for membership in the local lodge. You check it out and decide that the Masonic life is the one for you. How exactly, then, do you transition from run-of-the-mill hoi polloi to member of a select and legendary secret fraternity? The answer lies in the initiation ritual, which of course is supposed to be secret. But this being the era of the internet, every secret-having organization from the NSA to the Vatican to Scientology to innumerable hacked multinationals have discovered to their chagrin that secrecy ain't what it used to be. Rather than just go through the latest version of this ritual, we're instead going to use the example of one William Gull, initiated in or around 1842 into Masonry before going on to become one of the most prominent doctors in Britain and the personal physician to Queen Victoria. William Gull was definitely a prominent surgeon and physician to the Queen, as well as a seemingly forward-thinking and feminist dude for his time. He was the first to identify and attempt to treat anorexia nervosa as an illness attacking young women back in 1873, and a campaigner for increased acceptance of women in the field of medicine. 
but he was not, according to the meticulous records kept by the Grand Lodge of England, ever a Freemason. Jesuit's still going to go through this fictionalized initiation with some supporting material from John Dickey's book, because this Masonic version of the real-life goal is going to come up in a super interesting historical conspiracy later. But we wanted to tell you about the real guy before we talk about the unlikely stories besmirching his good name. So even though this Dr. Gull was probably not actually a Freemason, there's a very good fictionalized version of his initiation in the book From Hell by Alan Moore. So we're going to combine Moore's and Dickey's renditions to provide a super condensed idea of what Masonic rituals are like. Trust us, this focus on Gull will make sense later. A man in an apron wielding a drawn sword makes you surrender your money, keys, phone, all the metalwork that anchors your person to the world outside. He blindfolds you. You feel your right sleeve being rolled up and the left leg of your trousers, so as to expose the knee. Your arm is taken from the left sleeve of your shirt, thus leaving your breast naked. A slipknot loop of rope is placed over your head. You step forward. Your life as a Freemason has begun. At this point, another aproned man, holding a dagger, demands of the first. Whom have you there? Dr. William Gull, a poor candidate in the state of darkness, humbly soliciting to be admitted to the mysteries and privileges of Freemasonry. The second man presses a knife to Gull's chest and demands, Do you feel anything? Gull answers, Yes. Dr. Gull, in all cases of difficulty and danger, in whom do you put your trust? In God. Then kneel upon your left knee, your right foot formed into a square. Take in your right hand the volume of sacred law, and in your left, these compasses. One point pressed to your naked breast. He does. Then recites, I, William Withy Gull, in the presence of the great architect of the universe, do solemnly swear to always heal, conceal, and never reveal the mysteries of free and accepted masons under no less a penalty than that my throat be cut across, my tongue torn out by the root, and that I be buried in sand a cable's length from the shore where the tide regularly ebbs and flows twice within twenty-four hours. Wait, hold on, Jesuit. What's with the violent retribution? Yeah, kind of over the top, isn't it? But that's the Masonic Oath, or at least the version in circulation at that time. It's almost as if the sheer inanity of the Masons' secrets has to be bolstered with grand guignol theatrics in order to give them any weight. It's like a much more graphic cross-my-heart-hope-to-die stick-a-needle-in-my-eye. So that gives you a flavor of the initiation for the first degree of Masonry, the Enlightened Apprentice. At this stage, the initiate learns the sign. That's the threat of violent death. The grip. The secret handshake, which is just a regular handshake, but you put your thumb on the knuckle of the recipient's pointer finger. Nothing too exciting. And the word, which is... Boaz. Fun to say, and the name of one of the two pillars that, according to the Bible, stood in front of Solomon's Temple. Remember all of the Solomon's Temple backstory we provided a while back? It's not just the Templars who were obsessed with it. There's a whole lot more to the ceremony after this. The initiate learns about the tools of the craft more symbols, and discussions of the various virtues like providence, benevolence, fortitude, etc. And there are additional rules. But after all of that, as Dickey notes, the new Mason may realize that for all of this talk, he's only learned secrets about secrets. Where then are the secrets themselves? Well, maybe there's more meat in the ceremonies for the other two available degrees in original recipe Freemasonry. The second designation is called Fellowcraft, and the ceremony is almost a mirror image of the first. The right leg, right side of the chest, etc. are bared. The mason learns the name of the other pillar, Shashin, and the second level handshake, Thumb on the middle knuckle. Riveting. Oh, and this time he won't reveal the new secrets, On pain of having his breast torn open and his heart plucked out and eaten by vultures. 
But as far as learning real juicy mason dirt, it's bupkis. Well, what about that third and final degree? Oh, Jesuit, this is some exciting shit. Shirt totally open, both knees bared, thumb between the middle and ring fingers? The secret word is mahabone, which sounds dirty, but actually has an obscure origin. It might mean the lodge door is open in some language or another. And this time, secret revealers are to be, quote, cut in two and have their bowels burned to ashes, which are then scattered over the face of the earth. Delightful. But is that it? It turns out there's actually one more super weird part of the third-degree Masonic initiation that we're going to need to go over. The death of Hiram Abiff. there's a bit of confusion at the origin point for old Hiram. This is because, according to the Bible, Solomon the temple guy worked with another king who was named Hiram of Tyre and who provided materials and workers for this temple that every secret society seems to get so worked up about. But there's a reference to another Hiram, whom the Bible notes was the son of a widow from the tribe of Naphtali, who was entrusted by Solomon to create detailed decorations for the temple. The rest of his legendary tale comes from the Masons, including the idea that Hiram's family name was Abiff. This legend is weirdly important to the Masons. In Masonic teachings, Hiram Abiff is the architect of King Solomon's temple, and his story is one of faithfulness and death before dishonor. But more than that, Hiram Abiff is the template of excellence in Freemasonry and appears throughout the centuries in many Masonic degrees, in various guises, lessons and references. A figure of virtue, justice, skill and honour. If Freemasonry has a hero, that hero is Hiram Abiff. In fact, that movie we mentioned earlier, Terra Masonica, points out that for hundreds of years, Masons have visited the purported locations of the quarries the stones for the temple came from and have covered the place with Masonic graffiti. It's the gate of Damascus where we find a little-known curiosity. Zedekiah's cave, also known as King Solomon's quarries. Masonic meetings have been held in these quarries since the 19th century. Generations of builders have cut this rock. It took centuries for Jerusalem and, so it goes, Solomon's temple to emerge from this cave. Many graffiti testify to the passion of Freemasons the world over for this highly symbolic place. But the most important thing about Hiram Abiff and the story of the temple for the Masons is that, as Dana Big Unicorn Soprano will tell you, You say what you want about Hiram, but that guy wasn't a piece of shit dooly rat fuck. Three guys get the shit out of him. Cut out his fucking balls, and he still didn't say shit. 
Now that's a fucking stand-up pace on. Yes, that's right. After all of the violent oaths swearing to keep the Mason's non-existent secrets, the centerpiece of the Master Mason Degrees initiation is... A play about keeping secrets under pain of violent death. The candidate plays Hiram. He refuses the entreaties of three ruffians. Ruffians? How English is that? Just be glad they weren't hooligans, Unicorn. The hooligans are loose. The hooligans are loose. (laughs) What if they become ruffians? (laughs) Anyway, these three are traditionally named Jubella, Jubello, and Jubellum. These weird names will be important later. Anyway, these three scamps try to cajole Master Hiram to give up the secrets of masonry. He refuses, and shit goes real bad, real quick, as we'll hear in this video excerpt. In Masonic ritual, three ruffians accost Hiram. It occurs during the dramatic play of the third degree of Freemasonry. The ruffians demand the secret word of a master mason. Hiram refuses to give it and accosts him his life. After a lengthy search of the body, Hiram's remains are finally discovered. King Solomon and Hiram, king of Tyre, a different Hiram, raise Hiram with a master mason grip. It symbolically lifts him into this world of immortality. And it's a status earned in part by his integrity. After all, he kept the secret word a secret. Here are some more quotes from the probably fictional initiation of Dr. Gull as Master Mason. Speak of thy interrogation. Thou, Jubello, did he tell you the word? I beat him and tortured him, but he would not reveal the word. Thou, Jubella, did he tell you the word? I tormented and vexed his inner spirit, but he would not reveal the word. And thou, Jubellum, did he tell you the word? I cut out his organs of generation, and he was mute. He did not reveal the word. You know what organs of generation means? You thought Dana got carried away with the, what was it? Fucking balls. Yeah, that was it. But no, that Jubellum motherfucker don't play. So fellow Masons portraying these three goons pretend to rough up the candidate in his role as Mr. Abiff, and then he dies and is placed in a canvas body bag and paraded around the lodge by other Masons. But the best part is he comes back to life at the end, thanks to a big hug and that magic Masonic handshake. And after some more ceremonial stuff, he's reached the pinnacle of so-called Blue Lodge Masonry. He's a master Mason, and he's got access to all of the secrets. Which are, Book John Dickey? The ultimate secret of Freemasonry is that death is a serious business and it puts a perspective on things. That really is all there is to it. For all the layers and folds of mystery, Freemasonry's promise to reveal hidden verities turns out to be the wrapping for a few home truths. The craft, as the ritual of the second degree explains, is nothing more or less than a peculiar system of morality, veiled in allegory and illustrated by symbols. That's underwhelming. Sure. But while the ceremonies don't hide any important truths, the rituals and over-the-top oaths and play-acting all serve to elevate the sense of fraternity and to add some pizzazz to the whole affair of being a Mason. As Dickie points out, each of our lives are full of rituals as simple and meaningless as slapping our palms together in appreciation of a performance or saying God bless you when someone sneezes. Humans tend to like and get a lot out of rituals, even pretty simple ones or ones that are kind of silly. Now that we understand the basics of masonry, let's check out some of the important historic events and conspiracies these kooky kids have gotten up to over the years. Can I say, in the 
Welcome to Books Boys. Every month, the Dean and PJ tell you all about the books they've been reading and make some recommendations from our old favorites, plus surprise call-ins from authors to talk about the works that they're writing, original music, prize giveaways, and more. That's Books Boys on BooksBoys.com and all good podcatchers. Books Boys. Get it. Buy it. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.